good morning, wherever you find yourself this morning. And uh, I'm really struggling this morning to answer that question, how am I doing? Because I have such a mixed bag of emotions. Uh, on one hand, I'm really grateful. And on the other hand, I'm, I'm really angry. And on another hand, I'm, I, I'm really sad. And so I'm not quite sure how I'm going to bundle all of that up uh, in one uh, slot this morning. So first of all, um, I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity that we have as a church to do the kind of work that we do. I'm grateful for the countless number of people in the background that make something like what we're doing today possible. And often we don't hear and, and see the immense amount of work that they do. And so I'm grateful for uh, the sound engineers, the videographers, the editing that goes into this. And so a deep thanks for the incredible work behind the camera. I'm also angry about what's happening in the world and saddened by how my black friends uh, have been hurt over the last couple of days um, around what's happening around the world. And so I've tried to make some sense of it. And, and I, the only way I really know how to do that is through storytelling. And so there's a couple of stories I want to share with you uh, today and then also share a little bit uh, from the Word of God. And so the first story I want to share with you this morning, it's a story from a book called Upstream. And in the book, it starts with a story like this. You and a friend are having a picnic next to a river and you're enjoying your time together. And while you're busy uh, enjoying some, some, some talking and meals, you hear that there's a child drowning in the river. And so you drop what you're doing. You jump into the river, both of you. You save this child and you bring this child to the, the banks of the river. And, and you're still out of breath and, and you've just got right with uh, getting this child out of the river. And there's another child in the river. So both of you jump back into the river, uh, swim out to the child. You save the child. You bring the child back. And barely getting back to the shore, there are now two children in the river. So both of you back into the river to save these two children. And while you're saving the one child, you notice that your friend has no longer saving this child, but now is swimming upstream. And you start shouting to your friend, hey, what are you doing? There's a child drowning here. Aren't you giving up on your responsibilities to save this drowning, drowning child? And your friend shouts back to say, I, I'm swimming upstream because I can see that there's a, a school upstream that has a broken fence and the children are falling into the river because of the broken fence. I'm going upstream to fix the fence. And when I thought about that story, it, it's really helped me put what's happening in the world and in our country into context. I think as a, as, a, as a community in South Africa, it feels like we've just gotten to grips with what the COVID-19 lockdowns have meant for us. And we've, we've just gotten our breath and the systems in place to how to deal with level three lockdown. And now there's another crisis on our doorsteps. And we need to now jump into the river and begin to deal with that crisis. And so... Um, as a church, I, I want to make a commitment to say, one, we're going to deal with the crisis right in front of us now, but we also got our eyes uh, on the broken fence upstream, and we are deeply committed to solving upstream problems so that when we mend the fence upstream, we will not talk about uh, racism and systemic racism. When we fix the fence upstream, we will have it um, no longer will we need to talk about um, gender-based violence. When we fix this fence upstream, we will begin to narrow the gap between rich and poor in our country. And so we got our eye on upstream solutions, but we do have to deal with what's in front of us right now. And so later today, Pastor Sai will be talking about some practical steps that we can do to deal 
with the issue that's right with us right now. But I also want to make sure that we, we're crystal clear about this, that as a church, we are committed to fixing this problem upstream so that we don't need to deal with crises on day-to-day basis. So I want, to imagine, I want you to imagine for a moment, um, you can get into a time machine and go back in time to the 31st of December, 2019. Can you believe it? 2019, what a different year. Now you've got 10 minutes with yourself in 2019 to best prepare yourself for 2020. What will you say to yourself? What will, what will you say about how you need to prepare yourself and what, what, what shouldn't you take for granted? I know for myself, if I was speaking to myself in 2020, um, about 2020, 2019, I wouldn't believe the things I'd be telling myself. I, I wouldn't even understand some of the, the language we use now like that just rolls off our tongue nowadays, like uh, um, social distancing, you'll need to be aware of that. Um, understand that level three lockdown, uh, take the advantage of taking a walk. Um, and uh, the meaning of being zoomed out has a completely different meaning to what it means now in 2020 versus what it meant in 2019 to be zoomed out. And so um, we're living in a time of what I would call an untime, a time of uncertainty, a time of unpredictability, un- Un, 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 uncontrollable. Um, what's another word that I like to use? Uncertain times. And when we're in these times of un, uh, it often feels like we're out of control. And all we need to do is to look to the Word of God uh, when the people of Israel were in a time of un, what God would do. Normally, what God would do when people were going through a time of un in the Word of God, He would raise up unexpected people to do His work in unexpected ways. Now, whether that is um, David, the unexpected uh, shepherd boy to become the king of Israel and the young man that would take out a giant, whether it's Gideon, uh, the, the underdog in his family, the youngest in his family, the weakest tribe in Israel that God then asked to take on uh, and liberate the Jewish people from their oppressors, or is it Esther, the young woman that finds herself uh, in royal courts with an unforgiving king, and she needs to uh, present him with an unpopular message. Or even Mary, the teenager that would give birth to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the Savior of the world, uh, in an unplanned pregnancy. And I often think, why would God choose a teenager? Uh, couldn't he have chosen a, a woman of better stature, a slightly older woman that society would have taken a little more serious? But God does things in unexpected ways and uses unexpected people. And the last example around this would be Paul, the chief prosecutor, uh, uh, persecutor of the early church, uh, becomes one of the leaders of the early church. And so God has a way of doing unexpected things in unexpected ways when we find ourselves in unexpected territory. And so we are definitely living in one of those times where everything is just upside down. Lareko last week was speaking about um, how, asked the question, can a nation be born in a day? And he asked, and he had some sessions, uh, he spoke about how um, the importance of understanding the seed that is inside of us, and that we need to understand that that seed inside of us is part of bringing this nation, um, and birthing this new vision, and this, the birthing this nation. And so, uh, today we pick up the story and we all understand that every seed needs to be planted to bear fruit. 
And so each of us have been planted in a particular field. And that field could be the city we find ourselves in. That field could be the, the industry of type of work that you find yourself in. You could be planted in a particular organization on a particular team. And, and the church that we fellowship in is a field that we've been planted in. And so we need to ask the question, uh, Lord, what do you want us to do in this field that you've planted us in? What are the things that we should do? How should we pray? How should we live? In many ways, it's Mordecai coming to us and saying, you've been placed in this position for such a time as this. And our, we need to say, oh Lord, what do you want us to say? What do you want us to do in the positions that you found ourselves in? And so the Jewish people in around 594 BC found themselves in a very similar situation. They were exiles in Babylon. And they were asking the question, how should we live in exile? Should we be living with one bag packed, ready to jump and go at a drop of a hat? Should we be praying for the downfall of Babylon? And the Jewish people were getting mixed reports as to how they should live by a number of diviners and prophets. And so God speaks to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah writes a letter to the Jews living in exile, telling them how they should live. And so we're reading this morning from Jeremiah 29, verses 5 to verse 7. And it says this, Build home, houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to. Pray, the Lord says, on its behalf. For if it thrives, you will thrive. And so this is the message that God gives Jeremiah to tell the people of Israel how to live in exile. And so the first thing he says in verse 5 is build homes, plant gardens, take wives, give your sons and wives, and, and, and multiply, don't decrease in number. And so what God is telling the Jewish people how they should live in exile is to become part of Jerusalem, uh, become part of Babylon. Make Babylon your home. Don't be a tourist in Babylon. Don't be a consumer of Babylon, but become a contributor to Babylon. And so I believe that God is telling me and you that we need to become contributors in the fields that we find ourselves. We need to be contributors in the places of worship. We need to be contributors in our city. We need to be contributors in our places that we find ourselves where we work. So what does it mean to be a contributor? Well, there are two things I want to talk about around being a contributor and not a consumer. The first thing is that we need to contribute to the values or the culture of the fields that we find ourselves in and not be consumers of that culture or those values. And so how do we do that? Well, God's Word is very clear about how we should uh, inculcate God's values and God's uh, culture in the organizations, the places of worship, the cities that we find ourselves in. Whether it's in Galatians 5 and we talk of five and we talk about this fruit of the Spirit, or Matthew 5 where Jesus is talking about the Beatitudes, or Jesus just saying that we need to love our neighbor. And that's why it's so important that we need to be constantly found in the Word of God because God's Word will show us how do we need to be contributors of the culture that we find ourselves in and, and start to inculcate God's culture in the places that we find ourselves in. The second thing, to be a contributor and not a consumer, is that we cannot be bystanders any longer. We cannot be on the sidelines and just watch 
what's happening. When we see the hungry, we need to feed them. When we see injustice, we need to speak up. We can no longer just sit on the sideline and have our arms crossed and say, it's not my problem. We need to take ownership of the issues that are finally are rising up in, our, in the fields that we found ourselves in. And so that means that we need to say the things that need to be said. And so that's what it means to be a contributor. You need to put some skin in the game. You need to make these places your home in many ways. And so that's the first thing. The second thing that Jeremiah says to the people of Israel, it's in verse 7. He says, pursue the well-being of the city, for when it thrives, you will thrive. And so he's telling the Jewish people that they should um, look, make sure that Babylon is prosperous, that make sure that, that Babylon does well. Uh, that is very counter to the way I would live in an oppressed country or in an oppressed community. And so God is really saying that living in the city of Babylon or uh, living in the, the field where you find yourself, it's not about you. It's about making sure that those places that you find yourself in are thriving. Um, just think about your prayer life and how your prayer life is sometimes so self-absorbed. Lord, protect me. Lord, bless me. Lord, this me. Lord, that me. And we really need to begin to challenge our prayer life. And I, I sometimes think when we look at the fields that we find ourselves in, we'll say things like, when I prosper, the church will prosper. When I have peace, the city will have peace. When my life matters, then black lives will matter. But in God's kingdom, it's all upside down. Because in God's kingdom, it says that when the church prospers, then I will prosper. When the city has peace, then I will have peace. And when black lives matter, then all lives can matter. And so God is really challenging us to put this concept on, on its head, that it's not about you, that it's about the communities, about the, the workplaces that we find ourselves in, and how do we begin to make those places prosperous and have peace and justice in those spaces. It reminds me of a story that Solomon speaks about in Ecclesiastes 9, where Solomon speaks about a city, a small city, that was besieged by a mighty king. And in that mighty uh, king was besieging the city. They didn't have the manpower to take this, this, um, this king on. Uh, Solomon doesn't tell us what city it was and why this powerful king was trying to <clears throat> excuse me, trying to invade the city. And, and, and the only thing inside the city was a poor wise man. And this poor wise man was the rescue of the city. Through his wisdom, he saved the city. And Solomon says he was astounded by this. He was surprised by this. Now, I had to ask the question, why would Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, be surprised by this kind of wisdom? And it's when we begin to unpack the story, it makes sense, right? Because Solomon, not only was he the wisest person that lived, but he was the wealthiest person that was around. He had stature. He had privilege. He was born into a kingdom that was peaceful. And so, in many ways, it was obvious that people would go to Solomon and look up to him because of his wealth, his position, and the stature that he had in society that people would come to him. But why on earth would somebody go to a poor person that has no stature in society, no wealth, no, 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 no prestige. The only thing this poor man had was wisdom. But yet through that wisdom, this poor man was able to save his city. The scripture goes on to say that people forgot who he was. And so when we save our communities, when we, when we do things in our communities, it's not about the recognition we get. It's about how do we make those places prosper uh, in God's eyes and light. So I want to share a story about uh, a gentleman by the name of Sam Nzima. 
Now, Sam was born in 1943 in a small town in Bushbuck Ridge. Um, his first job, I don't know if you know who Sam and Zima is, but his first job was in a hotel and one of, uh, as, a, as a waiter. And one of his waiter colleagues uh, introduced him to photography. And so um, he got introduced to photography. He really loved photography. He also enjoyed reading in the newspaper and found out that there was a, a career in photojournalism. And so the way he got his first photo, photojournalism job was he documented his trip on a bus and presented that to the editor of the World Newspaper, which is a black-owned newspaper back um, um, in, in the 50s and 60s. And so uh, he presents his story. The newspaper really enjoyed his story. And so he becomes a freelance journalist and later on becomes a full-time journalist. Sam had no idea that his life would fundamentally change in June 16, 1976. Sam found himself between the police and the young people uh, protesting on that morning. And he unpacks the story that he was between the police, or so the police on this side, the young people are protesting on this side, peacefully singing Kosisikilele i Africa. And, and at that time, the song is banned, and he could see that the police were beca becoming agitated with the, uh, with the young people. And Sam realized that this peaceful protest was about to turn violent. So he puts his press armband on, takes out his camera, and starts taking photos. Non not long after that, uh, the police start shooting uh, the young people. And Sam notices out the corner of his eye, a body fall to the ground. And he says, when he looked to the ground and saw Hector Peterson's body laying on the ground, he never expected to see a 13-year-old be shot by police. And, Hector, and so Sam takes this uh, picture that forever uh, gives us an understanding of what happened in 1976 of Hector Peterson's limp body being carried to the car. And so Sam realizes that um, it's illegal for him to take photos of the police. And so he takes that film out, puts it in his pocket, reloads his camera, and continues to take photos the rest of that day. And what happens is he gets stopped by the police later that afternoon. They confiscate his camera, open it, and expose all the film that he had, except for the photo, the film that was in his sock. And so later that afternoon at the World, at the world newspaper, there's a big debate uh, between himself and the editor, whether they should... Uh, print the photo of Hector Peterson's limp body being carried to the car. And, and their argument was they didn't want to cause a civil war in the country. And so after a long debate, they decide that they will print that photo. And that photo is printed, uh, subsequently becomes a banned image in the apartheid government. Um, that's, that image, before it gets banned, makes its way onto the international press. And as it makes its way onto the international press, uh, it exposes the apartheid government for what it was, a crime against humanity. And so Sam is confronted by police later that afternoon, say, the next day, saying, um, Sam, why did you take that photo? And his response was classic, to say, I had a job to do and I was doing my assignment. And so Sam leaves Soweto, going back to Bushbuck Ridge, uh, in fear of his life because the police were now, he was under security police surveillance. And Sam would never take another photo for a newspaper. And for years after that, Sam says that he regretted taking that photo. And it was only when Nelson Mandela unveils the Hector Peterson Memorial, and Nelson Mandela says that when we saw that photo, we realized enough was enough. And Sam realizes that his unexpected photo on that unexpected day uh, really impacted our country in a really powerful way. And so today, I draw analogies between what happened in 1976 and what's happening in the world right now. The images of George Floyd's um, uh, limp body uh, with the knee of a white policeman on his neck. A lot of my friends have said, enough 
is enough. And so we need to rise up. We need to be unexpected people, to do unexpected things, to speak for people that don't have a voice. Now, in 1976, there was no hashtags. But I think if there was a hashtag in 1976, it would have been Young Lives Matter. And when, they, we, when we would say li Young Lives Matter in 1976, we're not saying that teachers' lives didn't matter. We're not saying that nurses' lives didn't matter or old people's lives didn't matter. All we were saying is that young people needed attention in 1976. And I think the same can be said today, that black lives matter now because it's important that they do. And until black lives matter, no other lives matter uh, for now. It doesn't mean we have to buy into the full movement of the Black Lives Matter movement, but we do need to acknowledge that Black Lives Matter and we need to speak and what it means uh, for that. And so when you commemorate June 1976 this year, I want you to remember the hundreds of unsung heroes, people uh, that did something not for their name to get into the newspaper, not to become famous, but because they were seeking the prosperity of somebody else. And so today we have freedom because of the great work that many of those people have done. And so when we commemorate this year, remember the unsung heroes of 1976. And so in Jeremiah 7, so God's saying to the Jews living in exile, one, you need to be contributors, not consumers in the culture that you find yourself in, realizing that it's not about you, it's about others. And the third thing that he says in verse 7, Jeremiah says to the people of Israel, pursue the well, oh no, it says, pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray to the Lord for Babylon's, on Babylon's behalf. This was really difficult for the Jewish people. They knew what it meant to pray on behalf uh, of Jerusalem because we see that in Psalms 121, uh, 122 where people of, of, of Israel pray for the shalom of God to come to Jerusalem. But to pray for Babylon, what is God thinking? Babylon are the very people that killed your brothers and sisters. Babylon is the very people that put us into exile. And now we should pray, and not pray for its judgment, not pray for its downfall, but we need to pray that the city may thrive. That is such a tall order to do, and such a challenging thing for me, that we need to pray uh, for the fields that we find ourselves in. And so I want to share uh, one more story um, around this prayer, and it, uh, it's 1959. Billy Graham visits Moscow uh, for the first time. And he's visiting as a tourist. And while he visits Moscow, um, he, he points out, uh, one, we need to remind you that 1959, uh, Moscow is a very different place to what it is now. Uh, opposition towards Christianity is very strong. Um, uh, to the height and the power of, of the communist uh, regime. And so Billy Graham is visiting as a tourist, and he says he bumps into a number of silent Christians from the immigration officer that recognizes Billy Graham and points to the sky in recognition of God to the man standing next to him at the tomb of the unknown soldier and draws a cross with his walking stick in the sand to a woman on the bus and recognizes Billy Graham and blows on the window and draws a cross. And so throughout his time in Moscow, Billy Graham bumps into what he calls these silent Christians. And then he, in his autobiography, he talks about a time when he visited uh, the Lenin Stadium. It was an em empty stadium. He's walking around the Olympic Stadium. And while he's in that stadium, uh, Billy Graham says this. He says, Lord, grant me the opportunity to preach the gospel in Moscow. His prayer is hardly finished when he says he didn't think that this was a prayer that God was going to answer. He said that the opposition to Christianity um, in Moscow at that time was so immense. Plus, he was an outspoken critic 
of communism. And he just felt that this was one prayer that God wasn't going to answer. But 33 years later, um, in 1992, is it 1992? In uh, 1992, the Billy Graham Association accepts an invite to preach the gospel uh, in Moscow, Russia. Five events in that Olympic stadium. Billy Graham talks about the final night. 50,000 people cram into the stadium. A further 20,000 people outside the stadium watch the preaching of the gospel. That night, 25,000 people give their lives to Christ, respond to the call of the gospel. When Billy Graham goes back to his hotel and overlooks the stadium, he's, he's, he's taken aback by how faithful God was, even though Billy Graham says he prayed a prayer of unbelief. But it was a sincere prayer. And so that is a challenge to me and you uh, this morning, that we need to pray against these giants that are finding ourselves. And even if it's prayers of little faith, the size of a mustard seed, we need to pray. We need to pray that as a country, as a world, we'll come out on the other side of this COVID epidemic um, stronger. Uh, we need to pray for the fall of systemic racism in society. We need to pray that God will heal our nation. And, and it might seem really difficult to pray that right now because these things seem so big. But I want to encourage you this morning that if we have the faith the size of a mustard seed, we can say to these mountains, be gone and be placed in the sea and it will, be happened. It will happen. God's word says that nothing is impossible. And so won't you join with me this morning as we take our faith, how little it is, but with sincere hearts and begin to pray for the injustices that we see in our world, that we will begin to pray for where we find us. So join me in prayer as we pray for our country, as we pray for the world, um, and know that God answers our prayers. Father, we want to thank you that you are a mighty God. Father, we want to thank you that there is so much we can be grateful for. But this morning, Father, just like that prayer that Billy Graham prayed, a sincere prayer, Lord, grant us the grace to get through these difficult times that we find ourselves in. Father, help us get through this COVID epidemic. Help us understand how you want us to be cons uh, contributors uh, in this pandemic, Lord Father God, to feed the hungry to speak to the injustices we find in our country. Father, give us all the courage to speak up against the injustice of people that uh, have dark skins in our country. Give us the voice and the courage to do this, Lord Father God. Break down the walls of racism. Break down the walls uh, that say people are less than. And give us the courage to be your children in society now. And so remember that how we should live in the field that God has planted you in uh, be a con contributor, not a consumer. Remember, it's not about you. And pray for the fields that you find yourself in. Last thing I'll say about this is that this is such a wonderful image of what Jesus did for us on the cross. That he was a contributor to culture, not a consumer to culture. And he completely changed how we see and live in this world. Secondly, Jesus came not to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father. Uh, and, and when he was doing the will of the Father, it was because we were center, that our lives mattered to Jesus more than his own life, that he would give up his own life so that me and you can have freedom today. And the last thing is that Jesus prayed for us all the time. He prayed for Jerusalem. He prayed for people wherever he goes. And he continues to pray for us today. And so as Pastor Sai is going to speak to us now about some practical things we can do um, 
to speak about the injustices that are happening around us. It's been an honor to be with you this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Quentin, for challenging us and reminding us that there is work cut out for us. With God's help, we will win. Friends, I want to share briefly the practicalities of this word that Quentin has just shared with us. With the recent events that are happening in our world, the death of Collins Causa at the hands of the South African National Defense Force, the death of George Floyd at the hands of the police force, we say enough is enough. It has triggered something in us, and I believe we need to address the emotions and the pain that we are feeling. The Bible teaches about righteousness, justice, and reconciliation. And we would like to look at what God requires of us in times like this. When you read Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the Bible says, He has told you, O men, what is good, and He has told you, O men, what does the Lord require of you. This is to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Let me read it again. He has told you, O men, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. The Lord requires three things of us. He requires us to do justice, to walk humbly, and to love mercy. The Lord requires us to do these things because if we are to be honest with ourselves, we are affected directly or indirectly by what is happening in our world today. Despite the corona crisis, despite the economic downturn, we now have this demon of racism raising its head again. Justice is correcting the wrong and making it right. Making wrong things right. Justice is about righteousness. It's about correcting the things that are wrong in our society. Justice and, and righteousness are mentioned together in Scripture. We read in Psalm 89 verse 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Biblical justice by its nature, it is not retributive or punitive. Biblical justice is restorative. So when we talk about restorative justice, it is repairing the harm that has been caused in relationships between two people, between communities, or between people who have a relationship together. And that is reconciliation. When you read Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, the Bible says, Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. When you read Proverbs 31, verse 8, it says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. So when we talk about the concept of justice, I want us to ask ourselves this question, how does it look like to do justice? What do we do by the injustices that we see in our world today? So there's five handles I want us to discuss today, things that we can put in practice to see change in our society. The first thing is to recognize and admit that racism exists. We need to admit that we have a problem of systematic racism that has dehumanized people of color. We need to address that. What we see in the world today did not happen by chance. It happened by design. Let me give you two examples. When the slaves were taken, or Africans, when they were taken as slaves from Africa to America, 
when they got there, they were not recognized as full humans. They were three-fifths of a human. I don't know what that means, but it just shows how the injustices of the world, the roots of racism, can dehumanize people. The other example I want to give you is uh, here at home in South Africa, black Africans were not allowed to vote up until recently. There's something wrong with that picture. It was not by chance. It was by design. And we need to go to the roots and deal with the roots. So the question for us is we need to recognize and admit that racism exists. The second handle I want to give us is uh, we need to learn to listen. The text we've read says, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Walking with humility means we are willing to listen. We need to sit in the pain and the discomfort of our past long enough to be able to deal with deep-rooted issues of racism. Let me put it in a different way. We have to stay in the discomfort long enough until we say, enough is enough. I know that for some people, they will say, we have been talking about this for too long. Shouldn't we be over this? This is one of the problems I have with some of my white brothers and sisters uh, today. You will hear some say, I can't believe we are still talking about this. The point here is until we stay long enough in the pain, we can never appreciate that pain. Until we stay long enough in the discomfort, we can never appreciate the pain that what other brothers and sisters are going through. So we may be triggered differently. Some people, when they're triggered, it may be feelings of frustration, maybe feelings of anger, it may be feelings of hurt and pain. May I also remind you that in your anger, do not sin. That's what Scripture says. But I also want to say for me personally, I feel exhausted. I feel tired. I feel like we've been at this for too long. Things need to change. And I, some of you might be wondering, what do you mean that you are triggered? Psychologists will explain it better that there's something called generational trauma. Generational trauma is when one generation experiences trauma and they pass it on to the next generation. And they have done studies on this and how babies can be affected by trauma even when they are in their mommy's tummy. So I want to challenge us to understand that when we speak about generational trauma, it is something that is triggered by recent events that are happening in the world today. Maybe there's a different way to explain it. For example, if Lindy and I are in a conversation or we're having uh, what I would call an intense fellowship, we are disagreeing on something, and it triggers something from, I'm, from my upbringing, maybe something my mom said or something that my, my, my dad did, it may cause further anger. It may cause hurt or pain. And normally, people will sympathize with me, will go for counseling. People will understand. But I don't understand why we don't get generational trauma that is caused by racial injustices. So we are triggered because we still carry the pain of the past. Yes, we are saved. Yes, we love the Lord. But we do get triggered. The third thing I want to share with us is uh, prayer, the importance of prayer. When was the last time you prayed against the injustices of this world? When was the last time you prayed against racial discrimination? When was the last time you prayed for reconciliation? 
Or do we only pray for the things that affect us? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, the Bible says, When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. When we say black lives matter, we're saying that there is pain. Please pray with us, mourn with us, grieve with us, suffer with us, feel the pain, walk in our shoes a little bit to get an understanding of what do we mean when we say we are triggered. I trust that as you listen to the sermon, you will introspect yourself Maybe you're a person of color and ask yourself, how am I responding to this trigger? Maybe you're a white person. You have had the frustration of why are we still talking about this issue? I encourage you to introspect yourself and get to that place of understanding the pain that we are feeling because it is this pain that will help you understand why do we say currently as we speak, black lives do not matter as others. And that needs to change. The fourth handle I want to share with you is uh, love genuinely. The Bible speaks about love kindness or love mercy. First John chapter 4, verse 18 to 20. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Let me pause there. The Bible says, whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So if we are perfected in love in Christ, we should not have fear that we're going to lose our white privilege. We should not fear that we're going to lose what we've had that has worked on our behalf. The Bible says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. John was not mincing his words here. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. How can you say you love your brother, but actually you don't love them? How can you say you love them and actually your actions do not follow what you say with your words? I must say, I have experienced genuine love in the church. I have experienced true love in the church, but I've also seen injustices in the church, in the body of Christ. Sad to say, there's still a lot of work to be done also in the church. My final point, the fifth handle I want to share with us today is I feel the conviction of the Spirit to go deeper and wider. We need to take action. We need to go deeper and we need to go wider. What do I mean by that? By going deeper, it means that we need to read more. We need to listen more. We need to get to a place of understanding of why we are triggered and why people are feeling pain, anger, frustration, and exhaustion. We need to listen. We need to go deeper. As this church, Every Nation, Johannesburg, since the early 90s, we have been on this issue. We spoke about the roots of racism. We spoke about superiority complex, inferiority complex. We have done interventions like walk in my shoes. We have done interventions like bridge building. We have done watch your story. But I realize that most of what we've done has been in the four walls of the church. It's time to take the message of reconciliation, message of justice out there where it matters the most. 
when we did the land think tank, it was because it is an issue of injustice that we need to address and deal with. We have now been planning um, the job summit from last year already. We've had to postpone it because of the lockdown. The point is also we need to go there. Issues of socioeconomic injustices, the disparities between the wealthy and the poor. We need to address those things. We need to go deep and wide. I know that many of us are tired. I know many of us are frustrated, are angry. My challenge for you is we do not have the luxury of not engaging with this matter. Is this the South Africa we want to live for our children? Please be part of rebuilding the broken walls of our nation, of our society. This is a gospel issue. The Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the, uh, Paul writes that God has given us the message of reconciliation to reconcile God with men, but also to reconcile man to men. So when we preach the gospel, the cross, we are saying that come, be reconciled with God, but be reconciled with one another. The challenge we have as a nation or even the world is how do we reconcile something that was not consoled before, that was not together before? Our work is cut out. So in conclusion, how do we do justice? How do we love mercy? How do we walk humbly before God? There's five handles. What do we do, saints? We recognize and admit that there is still systemic racial discrimination in our nation. We need to learn to listen and listen long enough, sit in the discomfort long enough until we say enough is enough. Thirdly, we need to pray. Pray against the injustices that we're seeing in the world today. Mourn, grieve. Fourthly, we need to love genuinely, not just put up a smile. And finally, we need to take action. We'll talk more about that, on how do we take action? How do we engage with this matter? How do we go deep and wide with this matter? Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that we will not just listen to this word and then move on to another thing. May we sit in the discomfort that we're feeling right now long enough until we say enough is enough. Help us, Lord, to forgive. Help us, Lord, to uh, engage. Help us, Lord, to not hold back. Help us, Lord, to build a different South Africa for future generations. In Jesus' name, amen.